Good evening, my name is Emily Duffy and on behalf of the Catholic Information Center, I'm pleased to welcome you all here this evening. It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker, Clark Forsyth, author of Abusive Discretion, The Inside Story of Roe versus Wade. Clark is past president and now senior counsel at the Americans United for Life, where he has been an attorney for 28 years. AUL's mission is to change the law to protect human life, state by state. Clark has a BA from Allegheny College, a JD from Valparaiso University, and a master's in bioethics from Trinity International University. Clark has been co-counsel for parties in three US Supreme Court cases, has argued cases before federal and state appellate courts, and has testified before Congress and state legislatures. He has published more than a dozen professional legal articles on constitutional and bioethical issues. His latest book, which he will be discussing here tonight, is a critical review of the behind the scenes deliberations that went into the Supreme Court's decision about abortion and how the mistakes made by the justices from 1971 through 1973 have led to the turmoil we see today in law, politics, and public health. Please help me to welcome our speaker this evening. Well, thank you, Emily, and I want to thank the Catholic Information Center for inviting uh, me to he be here tonight to talk about abuse of discretion. Um, and uh, abuse of discretion, as Emily al alluded to, is about the deliberations, the two years of deliberations that went into the Supreme Court's decision in Roe versus Wade. Um, and it, it's a unique perspective because for 40 years, we've, 42 years, we've talked about the decision and, and what it's led to and how it was written and what's in the opinions themselves. But a number of years ago, um, back in 19, uh, 2008 or so, I uh, had a lot of questions about why the decision has led to so much turmoil. And I started this, this process with those questions. Why, did, why has it led to so much turmoil? Why didn't they settle the issue? Why did they issue such a sweeping decision? Um, uh, did they, uh, what did they have before them? What kind of facts, what kind of evidence? Did they know that they were gonna launch the country on 42 years of political and public health turmoil, illegal turmoil? Um, and um, uh, that led me uh, to, uh, to uh, look for the transcripts of the arguments. I wanted to see what the, the lawyers argued to the court, what kind of questions the justices asked. And you can actually hear the original uh, audio, and you can read the original transcripts. If you go to a website called oyez.org, O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, you, uh, you can hear the original audio. It's, it's, four, it's four hours in total, but it's, it's very interesting to hear the original justices ask questions and the original uh, uh, attorneys argue the case. The, the cases were argued first in December 1971, Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton, and then again in October 1972, Roe and Doe. So it's four hours of oral argument, but you can read the original transcript and you can hear the original argument, and they tell a, 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 a surprising story. And to give you one, just one uh, tidbit that uh, I won't tell the end of the story, but I'll tell the beginning of it that might lead you to have some interest in listening to the original audio, the Attorney General for Texas, first oral argument before the Supreme Court, first time up before the Supreme Court arguing Roe versus Wade. And he begins our argument, unlike, perhaps unlike any that's ever been argued before the court, uh, the standard procedure is to uh, start by saying, uh, by, by addressing the Chief Justice and the Justices. He starts out with 
a joke. Um, and it happens to be a particularly terrible joke, and the oral argument kind of goes down from there. Um, so it's a terrible start to the argument, and it's a terrible argument. Um, and, but you can, hear the, you can hear it, and you can hear the complete silence that follows his joke um, if you go on and listen to the audio and read the transcript. Uh, Abuse of Discretion is, is, I think, the most important book written about Roe since Roe because of the Justice's papers that have been released to the public over the last uh, 15 or 20 years ago. This book couldn't have been written uh, 11 years ago because Justice Blackmun's papers were first released to the public uh, in 2004. Before then, uh, this book couldn't have been written. And we now have the papers of eight of the nine justices who voted in Roe versus Wade, all but, uh, all but Chief Justice Burgers, which are still under seal and won't be released to the public until uh, 2025, as I understand it. And you might think there's some federal law that, um, or some national law that, that uh, governs what goes into the papers and when they're released, but there isn't anything like that whatsoever. It's up to the individual justices. So some justices, like Justice Blackmun, were kind of pack rats, and you can find newspaper clippings and handwritten notes, and it's just, they're just stuffed full with uh, some kind of uh, some arcane kind of uh, uh, paper and uh, and recollections and so forth. Other justices burned half their papers, and what they left to the public is uh, just official uh, written published drafts of opinions, which is, is not as interesting nor as insightful as, as Justice Blackmun's papers. But we now have, now have the papers of eight of the nine justices who voted in Roe versus Wade, and they tell a completely different history than we've heard before. A and the papers are important because there wasn't any record in these cases as in a normal judicial decision, and the papers tell more than is on the public record. Uh, and it's not just history. Uh, abuse of discretion tells us how we got Roe versus Wade, but it also highlights uh, permanent defects uh, in the decisions, Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton, that are growing larger and larger and have had a bigger and bigger impact as the years go on. Um, but before I go any farther, I, I, I think for any audience I, I need to explain just what we're talking about when we talk about Roe versus Wade. The public refers to it, the media refers to it as Roe versus Wade. But Roe versus Wade is really two cases. It's Roe versus Wade from Texas and Doe versus Bolton from Georgia. And you have to read both cases together to understand what the court did, the impact of what the court did, and, and what our national policy on abortion has been since 1973. The, the justices said, the court said, that Roe versus Roe and Doe are to be read together. They expressly said that. And in Roe versus Wade, the justices created a right to abortion up to fetal viability. Uh, but in Doe versus Bolton, um, they expanded on that. In Roe versus Wade, they created this right up to viability, but they said that even after fetal viability, the, uh, the states have to allow abortion for any reason related to maternal health. What's health mean? Well, in Doe versus Bolton, they provide the definition of health. And they say that, um, that health means, quote, all factors, 
physical, emotional, psychological, familial, and the woman's age relevant to the well-being of the patient, unquote. So that health definition in abortion law uniquely means emotional well-being without limits. And this health exception after fetal viability basically swallows the supposed ability of the states to prohibit abortion after fetal viability. So you have to read Roe and Doe together, and when you read Roe and Doe together, you understand why we have a sweeping national policy of abortion on demand virtually from conception to birth. And so the decisions were sweeping decisions, and they have isolated the U.S. as one of only four nations. Uh, we're, we're ranked with uh, North Korea, China, and Canada, and the U.S. As, as the only four nations of 195 around the globe that allow abortion for virtually any reason after fetal viability. And unlike in those other countries, it's specifically because of the judicial decision by the court in Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton. So I started with all kinds of questions, and I found the audio, I found the transcripts, and that led me to look for the justices' papers. And at that time, all of them were not released. Uh, since then, uh, Justice Brennan's and Justice uh, Rehnquist and others have been released to the public. But when I got into the papers, I was just shocked at, at what I found. Um, first and foremost, I was shocked to learn that Roe versus Wade began as a procedural mistake. The justices didn't take the cases to decide the abortion issue. They didn't take the cases to address abortion or declare a right to abortion. They took the cases in uh, April of 1971 not to decide abortion, but to decide a mundane procedural jurisdictional issue that only lawyers would be interested in. Uh, they, they, it was about the, the relationship between the state and federal courts and whether civil rights uh, defendants in state court could take their cases out of state court and into federal court. And this at the time was a divisive issue within the court. So the court took the cases to decide that question. But then a crisis in the court came in, in September of 71, about five months, five months after they took the cases, when within the space of a week, Justice Harlan and Justice Black retired due to ill health. Justice Black died uh, that month. There was a big national funeral for him. Uh, Justice Harlan died at the end of 1971 from cancer. But that left two vacancies. It reduced the, reduced the number of justices to seven from nine. And the court could still operate, and a majority decides the cases even when there are vacancies. So. It reduced the number of justices to seven, it flipped the balance of the court, and it empowered a temporary majority of four justices, Justices Douglas and Brennan and Marshall and Stewart, to, to make decisions during the vacancies. And they saw these two cases, and they saw them as an opportunity to declare a right to abortion and to sweep away the abortion laws before the vacancies could be filled by President Nixon, who they completely loathed, and President Nixon eventually filled the vacancies in January of 72 uh, with Justices Powell and Rehnquist. But the, the four had developed such momentum and had heard the cases for the first time and already voted. Uh, they had developed such momentum that even if Justices Powell and Rehnquist had wanted to reverse the momentum, they wouldn't have been able to, and that, that proved to be the case. The cases were re-argued in October of 72, and the decisions were released 
in January of 73. But when the four saw the opportunity to take these two cases and declare a right to abortion, they uh, stumbled into a series of preceding mistakes. These, four ca uh, these two cases had no record on abortion. There was no trial. There was no evidence on abortion whatsoever. Um, and there was no uh, intermediate uh, court hearing the cases. The cases went straight from the district court up to the Supreme Court. And if, and if you follow the original logic of the justices in early 71 to take the cases to decide this mundane jurisdictional issue, they didn't need a trial or any evidence on abortion. But when the four saw the opportunity to use these cases to de declare a right to abortion, they had no facts, no evidence whatsoever on abortion, its implications, its risks. Um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the risks to women from abortion, the, the risks or the implications of late-term abortion. They had nothing. So all the sociological and medical and historical data that's in the final opinion was derived not from the usual process of a trial and evidentiary procedure and, uh, and the advocacy process, but were derived from the briefs of interest groups that were filed in the Supreme Court for the first time. Uh, and, um, and that led to a, a number of other mistakes. For example, the, the most important medical fact or sociological fact that the justice rely, relied upon was this notion that abortion was safer than childbirth. Where did they get that? Well, there was no, again, no trial, no evidence, no record. They got that from interest group briefs filed in the Supreme Court, pr primarily by Planned Parenthood uh, Federation of America. And they latched on to this notion that abortion was safer than childbirth to, to decide and to write most of the rest of the opinion. Um, they, uh, ha they, be because they had this evidentiary and factual vacuum, they were tempted to rely upon their own hunches and notions and experiences and prejudices to decide the cases, and, uh, and the, the chief medical and sociological fact they latched upon was this notion that abortion was safe for the childbirth. Well, back in 1970, 71, 72, there was no reliable medical data to conclude that abortion was safer than childbirth. No existing obstetrical uh, uh, medical textbook, uh, obstetrical gynecological textbook, said that abortion was safer than childbirth. They reached back into the 1950s to Eastern European data, which they cobbled together from a number of uh, uh, medical essays and articles to conclude that abortion was safer than childbirth. And you can, you can look at the seven medical sources and articles that they cite in the Roe Ro versus Wade opinion. But if you go into those, as I do, in abuse of discretion in some detail, none of these articles demonstrate that. There's no reliable data. Uh, they're relying upon 1950s data from Soviet bloc countries. Uh, there's no reliable data. Uh, the articles, some of the articles um, are not even uh, published. They're not peer-reviewed. Um, they uh, compare uh, abortion deaths and childbirth deaths, in some instances, from Eastern Euro uh, European countries in the 1950s. Um, they're sometimes raw numbers. Some of the articles don't even purport to compare childbirth mortality and abortion mortality. So they're, if you, if you, uh, drill deep, uh, there's just no reliable data whatsoever. And yet, this uh, shaped the entire superstructure of Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton and led to a number of problems. 
For example, it led to the, the, the fact that the justices prohibited health and safety regulations, prohibited the states from enacting health and safety regulations in the first trimester, the first 12 weeks, when 90% of abortions are performed. And any health and safety regulations that the states uh, have passed today kind of run the risk of, of con co conflicting with Roe versus Wade because 42 years later, the justices still have not approved health and safety regulations in the first trimester. But the justices will have the opportunity to do that in cases that might come before the court in uh, this year or next year. Um, in addition, I was, I was uh, just shocked to find how the justices decided that the right to abortion reached to viability. Uh, in the first couple of drafts of, by Justice Blackmun, uh, the justices were talking about only a right to abortion up to 12 weeks or the first trimester. And in the first and, and second drafts, that's all they were talking about. Uh, and in the first round and second round of oral arguments, the word viability was not mentioned once. Throughout the arguments, the word viability was not, not a part of the arguments. The justices never asked any questions about viability. And after the second round of arguments, um, Justice Blackman goes back and drafts a third dra uh, draft opinion and he releases it to the justices in November of 1972. And it still says that the decisive moment is 12 weeks, the first trimester, and thereafter the states can prohibit abortion. But then the justices start jockeying behind the scenes and lobbying each other behind the scenes. And in early December, um, a number of the justices prevailed upon Justice Blackman to expand the right from 12 weeks or the first trimester all the way to 28 weeks uh, um, which they thought was the, the verge of viability. Uh, 16 whole weeks, four whole months, without any medical data whatsoever about the implications of that. The implications for women's health, the implications for live birth abortions. Um, there's there's no, no data whatsoever. They did that simply uh, to expand access and uh, based on this notion that abortion was safer than childbirth. So. These, um, these mistakes uh, uh, ha were built into the Roe and Doe decisions, and, um, and they um, provide the basis for the court uh, writing such a sweeping decision that was way out of line with public opinion and has been way out of line with public opinion for 42 years and explains the turmoil we've experienced in the United States over the past 42 years. Well, after I got done the research and beginning the writing for abuse of discretion, I was still left with a number of questions I couldn't answer from the justices' papers. And um, uh, there may still be avenues for additional research and, and questions that researchers could ask and lawyers could ask about why the justices did what they did. But um, uh, one of the questions I was left with that I just couldn't answer from the papers is, why did the dissenters, there were two dissenters uh, among the nine justices of it who eventually uh, signed the decision, um, Justices White and Rehnquist, why didn't they bring up this lack of a record uh, and the fact that there was no evidence, no facts? I, I haven't been able to answer that uh, from the papers and I, and I really don't have a good, dis, uh, a good answer except some speculation because by Deciding constitu this constitutional case by deciding these constitutional issues without any evidence and without any facts, 
the justices disregarded a long line of precedents and cases going back to the 19th century in which the court said, we won't decide constitutional cases. We won't decide constitutional issues without an adequate factual record. And the, um, the, only, um, the only kind of answer I've been able to come up with is that Justice Rehnquist was a rookie justice, been on the court for only a number of months. Um, he was dealing with a lot of other cases and um, wrote rather uh, somewhat of a weak dissent. Uh, and why didn't Justice White uh, address this? Um, I'm not exactly sure except that I've been led to believe that he had such disdain for the majority opinion that he didn't write, spend a lot of time writing a, a, a strong or thorough dissent. But there was a second question that I, I wanted to answer and wasn't able to based on the justice's questions. And that is, I was told as I was getting into the research uh, that there, there, there was this rumor that Justice Blackmun, after 13, 14 months of working on the opinions, was not able to finish them. And that Justice Brennan ended up writing and finishing the opinion. But of course, if you look at the Roe versus Wade opinion, Justice Blackman is listed as the only author of the opinion. Um, but I did find this. In the papers, um, in Brennan's papers, um, the, the, his clerks every year at the end of the Supreme Court's year or, or term that stretches from October to June, his clerks bind together the opinions he wrote during the subsequent uh, 10, 10, 11 months. And uh, they present these to Justice Brennan at the end of each term. And the opinions for 1971 to 1972 that they bound together include Roe versus Wade. But since his name's not on it, uh, why did they bind it among his opinions? And um, uh, I, I think that's strong evidence that, in fact, he did contribute to writing a significant part of them behind the scenes, but it's never been acknowledged publicly. Um, now, there's a lot of history and abuse of discretion, but um, it's, not, it's not just history, because the mistakes that the justices created and wrote into Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton have, have uh, uh, endured for 42 years. I mean, we are living with those mistakes. Women are living with those mistakes the fact that there are no health and safety regulations or the court has permitted none in the first trimester. The, the court has yet to approve clinic regulations in the first trimester. Um, the, the, the mistakes that I've highlighted in abuse of discretion um, explain why we've had this public health vacuum, and yet the justices aren't held responsible for the mistake they made. I mean, uh, you, you can think of any other dentist uh, dentist, uh, dental, or medical procedure that you or a family member has gone through over the past year or two or three, and uh, the, the safety of those is is primarily controlled through state law and 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 by the state representatives or the governors that we elect uh, at the state level, and 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 in the last couple of years, of course. Uh, the federal government has gotten more involved in that with, through the Affordable Care Act. But abortion is different from any other medical procedure that we experience as men and women because the justices 
can have control and have controlled this procedure for 42 years. They have the say-so on whether any limits, any regulations, any health and safety regulations are enacted by the state or federal government. And they have controlled it for 42 years. And yet, um, if, if, uh, if women don't have fully informed consent, if they're injured, if, they're, if they die after an abortion, we don't attribute it to the Supreme Court, but the justices are re responsible for this because they have uh, uh, assumed the role as, as, as the National Abortion Control Board and still control the issue. Abuse of discretion also dispels the justice's defense, the myth, uh, as I think it is, that Roe was considered with great care. And that is the defense that some of the justices have raised in support of the Roe and Doe decisions. Back in 1983, Justice, Black, uh, Justice Powell wrote that in the Akron decision in 1992. A, a number of justices repeated that defense of the Roe versus Wade decision in reaffirming that in the Casey decision. But that defense, based on the record we now have and the justices' papers, it makes no sense whatsoever. It, abuse of discretion also helps us uh, to understand how the court went off the rails, how they issued such a, a sweeping decision, uh, and, um, and, and the viability rule, and the, the, the notion that abortion is safer than childbirth are, are, are still before the justices and still relevant to the cases that they can decide. Uh, the, the, the cases that the justices might examine in 2015 or 2016 uh, may still uh, may still question the the viability rule and the entire notion that abortion is safer than childbirth. There are cases that the justices might consider involving admitting privileges or uh, uh, limits on chemical abortions in the first trimester, um, or uh, the use of ultrasound as part of the informed consent process. All of these uh, uh, r limits and cases. Uh, we'll have the opportunity to uh, address and, and, and cause the justices to readdress some of the mistakes they made. Um, so so when, I, when, I, when I finished the, the research and the writing, I, I really was more confident than ever before that Roe versus Wade will be overturned. It may not be uh, in the next couple of years. It may not be five or ten, for five or ten years. I, I hope certainly it's as soon as possible. But, um, but I was convinced of that because the defects they wrote into the decision and the superstructure of Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton, these defects are so huge and they've had such a large public health impact on obviously unborn children but as women as well that the justices will sooner or later have to revisit what they did in Roe versus Wade. So thank you for coming this evening and I wanted to open up to any questions you might have. Yes. You said that you were going to write something about the treatment. What are you referring to there? Um, well, the fact the substandard conditions in clinics, um, <clears throat> the the uh, the fact that in in uh, abuses, um, substandard conditions, substandard credentials. Um, I mean, for example, the admitting privileges r limits that some states have passed shine a spotlight on the fact that um, uh, most abortion providers, or, or at least many, um, <clears throat> aren't, uh, aren't tied to, don't have 
uh, credentials and privileges in local hospitals. Um, they often fly in from out of state to do abortions and then leave. And of course, they're not there to care for the patient. They don't have a long-term relationship with the patient. I mean, um, uh, very few women receive an abortion from their uh, full-time or long-term long obstetrician and gynecologist. Um, they go to a specialty clinic. There's no connection between that physician and their long-term medical history, and there needs to be, there needs to be a connection. Their uh, regular obstetrician gynecologist may know nothing about their abortion, but um, that, that is a significant medical um, phenomenon, and uh, regular obstetrician gynecologist needs to know about that. For example, uh, a regular obstetrician gynecologist needs to know about that for the, the future um, possibility of preterm birth after abortion. There are now more than 140 international peer-reviewed medical studies um, from 35 countries or more finding an increased risk of preterm birth, meaning uh, the possibility of, of uh, premature birth, preemies, uh, in future pregnancies after an abortion. The obstetrician gynecologist needs to know about that to counsel the woman in future pregnancies. But he or she won't know it because most abortions are performed by specialty clinics uh, which I suggest are, are substandard and, and, and are run by practitioners with, with substandard credentials. Um, and, um, and, and those are just some of the, the problems with the way the court has, um, has, has managed the issue for 42 years. If you have a question, I'll bring the microphone around. Oh, okay. Please. Uh, uh, she'd like the microphone. Why do you suppose the majority of four were so uh, in a rush to, to push this through? I mean, was there, without the, the typical due diligence, I mean, w was there tremendous social pressure at the time or with lobbying groups, or what would have made them do that? Um, I, uh, there's a chapter in, in Abuse of Discretion which I lay out an, a number of soci social and political factors that I think influenced the justices. Um, but there was also... Um, in some of the justices' backgrounds, personal factors that influenced them. Uh, uh, it's well known that um, Justice Douglas, among the four, was the real leader. He was bent on eliminating the abortion laws. Um, he was well known in Washington as a, as a, as a frequent philanderer. Um, he was married four times. He had all kinds of affairs and, and, and dalliances. And since the 50s or 60s, he had been bent on eliminating the abortion laws. And um, he had a huge impact behind the scenes in lobbying Justice Blackmun, pressuring Justice Blackmun, pushing Justice Blackmun to expand the decision, uh, you know, uh, expand the impact of the decision, sweep away more abortion laws, and so forth. Justice Brennan is more of, a, of an, an enigma. Um, I, I don't know anything in particular in his personal background that, um, that influenced him particularly. I think he was certainly influenced by Justice Douglas. Uh, he was influenced by the fact that um, he had, uh, d uh, by the development of the so-called right to privacy that the Supreme Court had written into prior decisions. Um, Justice Marshall, I think, was influenced by some personal issues in his own life, his, his experience, uh, as he told the other justices, with um, 
with women who had been injured by back alley abortions. Um, Justice Stewart, um, I don't know as much about Justice Stewart. Um, Justice Powell um, was not on the court for the original argument, but he, he sat for the second argument. And when he retired from the court, he told uh, um, uh, a journalist that back in the 1950s, um, when he was an attorney in Richmond, Virginia, he had, a, a, as he referred to it, as an office boy, um, I guess a clerk, a law clerk, who got a local woman pregnant, tried to perform an abortion on her, uh, injured her severely, and she died. And Powell intervened with the local officials, apparently the police or DA, to uh, make sure that this kid was not charged with, uh, with a homicide. Um, and so the, 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 so the, the social issues, the political issues, the, the so-called population explosion that was a big national issue in the 1960s, all of these had a certain impact, but the, the personal issues did behind the scenes too. But you have to ask yourself, I mean, if, the, if a justice had some kind of personal experience in their background, Justice Blackman, for example, um, his daughter got uh, pregnant out of wedlock in, in the 1960s although th there's no evidence she had an, uh, an abortion, and I think it's pretty clear that she did not. Uh, um, but he, there was an out on uh, pregnancy out of wedlock in his family. Even if the justices were, had some kind of personal influence, um, that, that's not a basis for uh, uh, changing nationwide policy through a judicial edict. I mean, the, the two just you know, aren't connected. And the justices would not, you know, um, certainly Justice Powell would not think that the, because of know, some other personal experience that, that, they gave, that gave them authority to create some kind of national policy. Um, but I, as best as I can, uh, I try to explain uh, why the justices did what they did, and certainly the social and political issues and the trends and the turmoil of the time that came at the end of the 1960s and the, cult and the cultural turmoil of the 1960s, population explosion was a big national issue in 7071. All of that influenced the justices to think that, um, at least some, to think that uh, these abortion laws need, need to be fixed and that they could do it. Other? I'd like a little bit of expansion. Uh, okay, so the back alley death rate, back alley abortion, I've heard it used quite a bit, you know, this is the reason we need to, to have abortions. But you alluded to the, the lack of reg regulations quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Is there data that kind of, th th that we can compare to say, well, the risk of, uh, of death for a woman in a back alley abortion used to be this, and now they're not regulated, how different are they? How, how much better are they than back alley abortions? Uh, there, is, there is considerable data to, I think, wrestle with that question. In fact, um, I have a chart in Abuse of Discretion in one of the chapters, which actually looks at, at uh, n uh, data from the National Center for Health Statistics going back to 1920, from 1920 to 1972, uh, so a, a half century of data um, that um, shows the precipitous drop of maternal mortality, this is raw numbers, that in 1920, in the, across the nation, something like 1,400 women died from uh, 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 after, uh, after abortion. Um, and, and that number drops to something like 27 to 30 
1972. So a precipitous drop that was nationally recognized until the 1960s, in large part due to medical developments. Um, the developments of antibiotics, for example, in, in during World War II and after World War II. So, uh, that's right. That's right. Um, so there is this there is this precipitous drop that was well documented um, between 1920 and 1972. Um, but today, um, the the notion that abortion is safer than childbirth is based on a kind of crude mechanical comparison of the published abortion mortality rate and the published childbirth mortality rate. But uh, since these are rates, these are numerators over denominators. And what goes into the numerator and the denominator in the childbirth mortality rate and what goes into the numerator and the denominator in the abortion mortality rate, they're completely different. So there's no basis for comparing these. But they're very useful to abortion advocates because the published abortion mortality rate is something like 0.6 per 100,000 and the published childbirth mortality rate is something like 6 per 100,000. And if you just crudely compare them, then it looks like abortion is 10 times safer than childbirth. But even this, the, the, the former director of the CDC says they should not be compared because what goes into them is completely different. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's not apples and oranges, it's hamburgers and baseballs. I mean, there's no basis for comparison. But yet it's useful and it has driven the debate for 25 or 30 years. Um, so um, there's, uh, and I would add, in addition to that, there has been significant development over the last 20 years since the 1990s of this growing body of international medical data. I referred to the 140 plus international medical studies showing uh, increased risk of preterm birth. There's also, um, in an article I published in the Washington Law, Lee, uh, Washington Lee Law Review earlier in 2014, um, I cited um, uh, uh, nearly 100 um, international med uh, peer-reviewed medical studies finding an increased risk of mental trauma after abortion from a number of different countries. There are approximately 33 to 35 international medical studies finding increased risk of breast cancer after abortion. Uh, the, the most recent was from uh, China uh, in 2013 that had looked at a lot of data on, on, on a lot of Chinese women going back a number of years, finding a substantially increased risk of, of can, uh, breast cancer after abortion. Now, we have to use these data carefully. Increased risk doesn't mean causation. But this data didn't exist in 1971. Uh, it's been growing since the 1990s, and it keeps growing year after year after year because researchers and, and medical experts are interested in the impact of abortion on women, and, uh, and the, this body of data will continue to grow. So that has to be taken into the equation as well. I hope that answers your question, at least in part. In the back. Thanks. You mentioned uh, initially that you thought within foreseeable future, uh, Roe v. Wade will be overturned. Um, on what basis do you think that is? I, I mean, what, what do you think will be the deciding issue going into it? Because I, I, to me, it just strikes me as odd that usually the Fed wants to regulate something, and as far as medical care goes, it was a deregulation of uh, uh, a medical procedure. And you, know, you contrast to something like uh, psychological counseling or 
certain states are now prohibiting uh, psychological counseling for uh, some kind of gender predisposition or something like that. Mm -hmm. That seems to be well within the purview of the states, but the the Fed hasn't made any motions to outlaw something like that. It, mm. They leave it to the states. So why did mm. this? I, 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 maybe I'm leading you a little bit, but uh, w what do you think will be the ultimate uh, factor that will probably take it out of the, the Fed's I don't. Court? I don't think there will be one. Okay. Um, I think it's going to be a culmination of a number of different factors. Um, uh, public opinion. Uh, Gallup polls going back to 1975 annually, and I, I, I cite them, a, a, the annual data from 75, the Gallup data from 75, show that um, <clears throat> despite 42 years of the Supreme Court's decisions, uh, uh, most Americans only s don't support abortion at all or only support it in, cer in certain circumstances early in pregnancy. So that it, the sweeping scope of the decisions um, has conflicted with public opinion for 42 years. And um, look, at the, look at the growth of state laws, not only in the abortion area, but even protecting the unborn child in the wrongful death area, fetal homicide area, prenatal injury area. Back in, in 71, 72, uh, a handful of states had, for example, fetal homicide laws. These, all these areas, prenatal injury, wrongful death, fetal homicide, treat the unborn child as a human being or a person in these areas of law Many treat the unborn child as a person from conception and protect her from conception. We now have fetal homicide laws in 36 to 38 states, 25 of those, meaning half of the states in this country have a fetal homicide law that protects the unborn child from homicide as a person from conception. That didn't exist in 7071. Most of that data, most of those state laws have grown since 73, which is an indication of public support for protecting the unborn child, especially in the non-abortion circumstance. You have this growing body of medical data showing long-term risk that didn't exist in the 70s. Uh, you have the states, uh, I mean, there are working majorities in 30, 35 states now, I would say, that will pass stronger and stronger limits, um, especially since, um, you know, 2007 in the Supreme Court's Gonzales decision. Um, so there, there are a, a number of different um, developments, and um, all of these are working to c cause greater tension with the Supreme Court's decision, greater tension with the federal courts, and are reflecting, you know, despite 42 years, public rejection of the sweep of the decision. Um, when we talk about reversing Roe versus Wade or overturning Roe versus Wade, the most likely outcome is that the court would return the issue to the states, and the states would have the renewed authority to pass partial prohibitions or broad prohibitions or, or very strong regulations. And I think based on what the states have done over the last decade or two, you would say it, see a number of states moving ahead with stronger and stronger limits. And even though we would not have a 50-state prohibition on abortion, I think the evidence is very strong that you would have uh, a much more uh, uh, anti-abortion or pro-life law and culture than than we do today under Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton. Uh, so I don't I don't think there's any silver bullet. I don't expect to see any silver bullet. I think it's a number of political, social, medical factors that are coming together to create a conflict. 
hope that answers your question as best as I, I can. Yes. I just had a, a co comment first is that I think the, the fact that the regulation is almost pro prohibited by this decision in the case of abortion clinics is it, it's sort of compounded by the fact that regulation is so strong in every other type of medical procedure. And so I think the public then really has, has, has uh, in, in their mind, has the perception that the state has done a pretty good job or the states have done very good jobs in uh, credentialing physicians to, in credentialing medical procedures. I, I believe that the average patient seeks out one of the, one of the uh, healthcare procedures and believes that they're fully vetted first or at least at least the risks have been well understood and, and, and well published and so I think that that's a, a a real a real problem for us is that women I think present themselves to these clinics believing that all these things are in place mm -hmm. but I, I was wondering Clark if your if your uh, book talks at all about the other actors in in the uh, in the cases and in the uh, the plaintiffs' attorneys have brought these cases, with Lucas in the one case and Weddington in the other, and, and, and did they have particularly elegant arguments, or, or was everything constructed around these? Were they relatively mundane arguments, or um, be, were they in their 20s, right? They were just yeah, ne they were nearly out of law school, right? Yes, uh, the, the attorneys for the plaintiffs who brought the case in Texas and the case in, in Georgia were relatively young. Um, uh, not, not that experienced, um, and they were very interested in sweeping away the abortion laws, and they saw the opportunity to use these cases to uh, challenge and challenge the abortion laws, create a national right to abortion, and eliminate the abortion laws, based upon prior decisions by the Supreme Court um, creating a so-called uh, constitutional right to privacy, um, and. Um, they, um, the, uh, much of the argument was, I mean, there were, there were kind of legal arguments based upon the right of privacy, and there were sociological and, and medical arguments heavily relying upon the negative impact of enforcing abortion laws. And I, um, in abuse of discretion, I get into some of those arguments about the sociological and, and medical arguments for the effectiveness in ab of abortion laws. And um, I, I try to make the argument that abortion laws were relatively um, effective. They um, uh, certainly, uh, the uh, number of abortions has increased dramatically since 19, uh, since the Supreme Court's decision. And um, that um, there was public support for the, for the enforcement of, of abortion laws in the 19, 60s and early 1970s. There was certainly a campaign to eliminate them, but um, but police and and district attorneys were involved in in a majority of states, perhaps 40 to 45 states, in actively enforcing laws, which were supported by the public at the time. And um, so when the court eliminated the uh, abortion laws in in Roe and Doe. They thought they were riding a cultural wave. They were thought thought they were, uh, you know, ahead of the cultural wave and kind of leading it. But, um, but in fact, there was substantial, I think, public support for these laws. As of 1972, or as of uh, January 73, when the court ruled, 30 states still retained their 
prohibitions on abortion except to save the life of the mother. 19 states had introduced some exceptions into their abortion laws, but none were as broad as the court decreed in Roe and Doe. So there was more support, uh, uh, looking back historically, there was more public support than, than we might think. Yes, back. Well, any decision, first of all, any decision that might be written would, would have to get the votes of five and, 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 or, or six, and uh, they would certainly influence what, what the outcome would be. Um, and, of course, any opinion rejecting Roe, uh, whether it's badly or brilliantly written, is going to be cr critiqued by the media. So we know that's going to happen. Uh, there have been a number of attempts uh, um, to actually write a opinion overturning the Roe versus Wade uh, and, and Doe versus Bolton decisions. Um, and, um, and, and I, you know, uh, if you'll e email me, uh, I, I can give you my card after we're done. I'd be happy to share those with you. Uh, but I think that um, there would have to be uh, kind of a, 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 a number of elements. Um, there, would, uh, there would have to be some reconciliation that the court in creating uh, or recognizing rights or fundamental rights has only done so uh, you know, if they're expressed in the Constitution or if they are deeply rooted in, a, in American history and law. And the history that the justice has relied upon in Roe and Doe has been repudiated over the last 40 years. And we now recognize uh, that there's abundant evidence that uh, English common law, American 19th century law, American 20th century law actually tried to protect the unborn child to the greatest extent possible given contemporary medical data. In, the, in, in addition, I think that historical argument would have to also take into consideration the court's self-appointed role as the abortion, National Abortion Control Board and what the practical implications of that would be. And uh, you know, public health officials have authority and power and the ability to intervene in emergencies and take care of substandard conditions and intervene in clinics and, and so forth that the court ha has never exercised and never can exercise. The court has been negligent for 42 years in allowing the proliferation of sub substandard clinics and substandard providers. And, um, and, and s there, would ha there has to be some, uh, I think, uh, acceptance of that um, and, and some attention to that. But I, you know, I can imagine a, uh, also a very, um, a very strictly legal decision which says um, we, um, we have no authority to be, to be involved in this. We have no authority to take over the abortion issue uh, because abortion has never been recognized as a fundamental right by the American people. And we're going to return this to the American people who, uh, you know, for better or worse, through the democratic process, um, can do a better job of taking care of this 
than we have done for the last 42 years. Um, but you know, I can imagine a number of different uh, themes and, and arguments that the justices might, might build into a decision. But, um, 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 but um, even, even what I have sketched is, is, is probably be, goes beyond the strictly legal arguments that the justices normally build into a decision. But, um, but they're also, I, I think even if the justices wrote an opinion that overturned the decision, it, would, it, it might not reflect political attitudes and political pressure, but um, the court is a political institution, and even though they don't, they don't recognize public opinion or what is happening in the states, I think all of that will implicitly and indirectly influence the justices. So public opinion and the direction of public opinion the states moving ahead with stronger and stronger limits and restrictions and regulations are all important in influencing the justices that what they have done has not been accepted and that they need to reconsider it. I think all of that might be part of it. Do yes. you have time for one more question? Oh, okay. Yes. Maybe I'm crazy, and I think I might be because nobody, nobody says what, what to me seems to be a strong argument. It seems to me that Roe versus Wade said the government can tell a human being you're not a person under the law, like slavery. We did that in slavery. And and we did it in Roe versus Wade. Isn't that the argument? And if that is, isn't that what the Constitution is for? In other words, doesn't it logically call for a, not giving it back to states' rights, but hey, can the states can in some states lynching be legal? Your question about personhood is a very good one, um, and thank you for raising that. Um, whenever I address the personhood question, I think it's important to distinguish between moral personhood, legal personhood, and constitutional personhood, which uh, are, are, are connected but different. Um, uh, I assume, and, and uh, I think uh, American legal history confirms that the unborn child is a, is a moral person because it is a human being. Um, uh, we have in our tradition treated all human beings as persons and uh, our tradition identifies the unborn child as a human being and therefore a person. So it's a moral person. Is it a legal person? Well, it's a legal person if it's, if it's protected by the law. And is it, is, it, is it protected in statute? Is it protected in the common law? Um, we've actually built a stronger case over the last 30, 40 years that it is, in fact, a person because it's protected by prenatal injury law and wrongful death law and fetal homicide law. That, that clearly shows that this isn't just a philosophical issue. It's a legal issue, and the unborn child is a legal person. But is, a, is it a constitutional person? That's really the nub of your question. Um, right. No state up to now has recognized the unborn child as a constitutional person under state constitutions. Um, and the court in Roe versus Wade said that the framers of the 14th Amendment did not intend to uh, treat the unborn child as a person within the protection of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment was intended to protect the freedmen and to address the rights of, of, uh, of former slaves uh, and to protect them. Um, and no justice up to now over the last 42 years, even the most anti-Roe justices, have said that the the um, the unborn child is a 
a person within the meaning of the 14th Amendment protected by the 14th Amendment. And I don't expect any justice in the near future to take that position because the, 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 the background of the 14th Amendment, the language of the 14th Amendment does not address on the unborn child, does not address uh, abortion, and the reasons for the 14th Amendment were very historically conditioned. Um, and the court would be, would be uh, if, if, if the court said that the unborn child is a, is a person within the 14th Amendment, th th that would be understood, rightly or wrongly, as prohibiting abortion from coast to coast. And the justices, for institutional reasons, want, especially Justice, uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas, have said the court should get out of this business. We have no authority to, to, to manage the abortion issue. Nothing in the text of the Constitution gives us that authority. It has always been a state issue. It always was recognized as a state issue. The 14th Amendment was not intended to take this issue away from the states. And we're not going to, through a judicial edict, we're not going to take the court from abortion on demand from across the 50 states to no abortions in any state by a judicial edict that will just, uh, as Justice Scalia has said, cement the court into the abortion empire business more and more. And, and it's wrong that the court ever took it away from the American people and the states. And we're going to send it back to the states and to the American people to work. So. Um, um, you know, 50 years from now, decades from now, if the states prohibited um, abortion um, uniformly and there was a national consensus against abortion, you know, uh, for any reason, uh, you know, maybe some future court would, would say that the unborn child is a constitutional person, but I don't, I don't see that in, in the near term or in my lifetime for the reasons I mentioned. Well, thank you very much for coming uh, this evening.